Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Merry Christmas, Chris. Merry Christmas, David, and to all our listeners. We hope everyone's staying warm, uh, staying as unscrambled as possible, or scrambled in a good way, maybe, you know, a fun way. Eggs are pretty good scrambled. Yes, they are. I had some this morning. I needed some. Com- I'm. I look. It's cold enough here to actually need some comfort food. You know. Yeah. Same here. It dropped to 19 last night, and woke up oh. this morning with frost on the car. <laughs> I had to use a, a my driver's license to scrape it off because I don't have a window scraper because it doesn't happen very often here. But Oklahoma. Here's putting Oklahoma weather in context. Next week we have highs of 84. So. That's Oklahoma during the uh, the winter season. Just these incredible, you know, polar swings from one end to the other. That's pretty intense. Yeah, we don't have that. Some. I mean, the sun is shining. It's beautiful here. It's just a kind of. I mean, it's so much milder than than you know many other parts of the world in terms of the thermostat. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a it's a feeling in the air that is kind of a bone cold a desert cold you know oh i know it yeah but i know yeah. it from my time in el paso there's a certain type of, of chill in that dry weather dry cold it played hell with my sinuses that's the one mm. that's the one so chris we held a christmas meetup on friday we're recording this on sunday december 19th the meetup was on friday december 17th we had a really great turnout I want to thank everybody who showed up there I was surprised considering our first meetup had an attendance of two to see all the beautiful faces that showed up to chat about this and that. Um, I think you and I agree that without sort of arguing with people who aren't here to argue back, we would in fact debrief a bit about some of the points that were raised in the uh, the meetup, uh, which included a long conversation about COVID-19, particularly its relationship to civic responsibility. Um, Before we get into that, though, just to prove that I'm not trying to escape from anything, can I have my creative (laughs) challenge up top here? Yes, you may. Thank you for that, because you've been a little bit weaselly in the past, yep. and we've heard you trying to, to slip out of it, despite the uh, the vigor and intensity you bring to the challenge when confronted. Mm-hmm. I'd remind listeners that, once again, David has been given five words to choose two to work into play somewhere during this session. This is a really great basic exercise that... Uh, that I use. It adds a little structure and a little bit of fun. Kind of makes a secret agents, you know, something to a private mission with all social obligations. But here is the imaginative challenge. And I thought we'd go back to uh, a very much a story, fiction, dramatic situation uh, with a little hint of, of crime. Uh, not far away from where I live, but you can you can set this anywhere in America you, you like. It's possible to get out on a two-lane highway and feel very far away from Las Vegas, very far away from everyone. You're out in a weird Martian lunar landscape, quite beautiful, but, um, but lonely and eerie. 
and it's possible to have uh, moments of completely dropping out of radio uh, range. You know, you're listening to a station and it just disappears. You check your cell phone and you're not getting uh, bars and you think, oh, this wouldn't be really a great place to break down, you know, if, if something happened. So you're out driving in this kind of an environment. Mm -hmm. And beautiful, but rugged, weird, strange. You're alone and you're feeling that sense of aloneness that can sometimes come over us. Sometimes not that far out of, out of civilization. Uh, and you also need to relieve yourself. So your thought is, well, do I just pull over? Uh, and I haven't seen anyone out here for a while. Uh, that's what got you thinking about kind of being out alone. And just as you're thinking that, you wind around a bend, and there, lo and behold, is a little restroom parking lot trailhead station. And there's no one there. So you think, ah, bonus. You pull in, use the men's room. Again, not a car has gone by for quite some time out in the middle of nowhere, you're really starting to hear your own mind thinking, you know, nothing to distract you. And then you look behind the restroom structure and lo and behold, there's a body lying prostrate. And you go over to look. You're concerned, you're curious, you're concerned. There are many things going through your mind. What's odd about this body, in addition to it apparently not moving, is that you quickly realize that the individual has been shot in the head and is just never coming back <laughs> from anything. The other thing that's strange is the figure is dressed up in a kind of Christmas elf-like costume. <laughs> the third thing... <laughs> that comes to mind as you inspect a little bit more deeply is that what appears at first to be a kind of naughty female Christmas elf is in fact a male appearing to look like a female which raises a whole other set of questions and then you notice the rather nice backpack lying beside the figure and you can't resist opening it <coughs> well inside of it is a rather substantial amount of caesar's palace poker chips which are completely negotiable completely fungible as we'd say and as all of these factors are coming into mind a car pulls up the first car that you've experienced in about almost an hour. What happens next? Okay. Oh, that's great. Basic premise of storytelling. What happens next? That's fantastic. I love that. I'll, uh, okay. I don't have any notes. I'm not going to write anything down for this, but that's right up my alley. So the gears are turning. Good. All Good. right. Thank you for that. We are yeah. to turn back to our conversation. 
uh, a lot of interesting points were brought up during the meetup. Your mother showed up, which is always a welcome addition to any conversation. <laughs> and so we talked a lot about COVID. And the way that I saw it, the, the conversation, discussion, civil argument that I was noticing seemed to fall into a few categories. Number one was the validity of trusting the science, which is something that you and I have talked about a lot on this show. Uh, but also, and interestingly enough to me, the responsibility, the civic duty of living in a large population of people, that seemed to be a point that Ellen brought up that had some resonance for you know, fellow patrons who had showed up to the meeting. And while I'm not particularly overall interested in debating the nuts and bolts of COVID anymore, because I think that we've turned a corner with that, where it's really going to be up to the individual to take it upon themselves to do some creative Googling to decide whether what they think about what's going on is true or not. I am interested in the concept of freedom versus safety, uh, which I don't think is um, an immature or uh, unworthy dichotomy to think about. Uh, but also, like I said, you know, what, what is our responsibility living in this society? What, what is our duty to protect others? So that's my piece for right now, but I wanted to turn it over to you and see if that resonated, if there was anything else that stood out to you, uh, so that we might, uh, you know, just sort of address these things. Right, and I, I think from, from certainly from the, the initial point of view of just recognizing the, the vigor and respectfulness of, of the, the debate and, right. and the fact that there really were some great conversations, some interesting points, and, and, and more, more really just kind of recapping that than trying to rehash or in any way resolve one particular issue such as COVID. Um, the thing that struck me is, and I think this ties back into a, a bigger uh, theme that we have been investigating is the blurring of categories categories of mind, categories of language. This is a, a, a Gilbert Ryle, the British philosopher's key uh, idea that, that miscommunication hinges on crossing over of categories where sometimes the same words are used, but in fact, very different systems yeah, right. lie behind them. And I think that uh, for starters, we have you know freedom versus safety that's an interesting sort of idea. But freedom versus social responsibility. Uh, and that's a very difficult you know, thing to deal with. It's, it's at the heart of the American uh, historical uh, raison d'etre. You know, the whole idea of resisting authority uh, was to some extent the, the founding basis. Mm -hmm. We see that in, in many other sort of uh, downstream slogans of don't tread on me or the, the current New Hampshire state motto, live free or die. Um, we're not really sure where those lines draw are drawn or connect. And I think it's an ongoing issue that really, we, we see that with free speech, we see that with gun ownership, uh, religion. We see it really on every aspect of, of societal life. And I, 
I think it does have something to do with the scale of, of society, the, the sheer number of people, and perhaps uh, a global framework, the fact that people can easily travel now. We have people coming from all over the world. We've got a climate crisis. We've got uh, people held up in airports. Uh, I believe we have 100 million Americans traveling this holiday season, as in right now, uh, despite, you know, warnings and, and fears. So there's a lot of stuff going on there that I think one of the reasons that COVID has resonated so fully is not just simply uh, the pathology as in disease or biology safety uh, reasons, is it because it's, it's such a physical, concrete metaphor for the problems that any individual and any society faces. Uh, and I think what we, what we didn't really clearly flesh out, and maybe would be good here, is there's a very big difference, it seems to me, between responsibilities we feel, as in, I need to help clean up the park that's next to me because I think that's a good thing to do, or I need to be courteous and help someone whose packages uh, have fallen out of their arms. <clears throat> you know, that, that's a kind of social responsibility. But there's a very big difference between that and having a driver's license, right. which is one of the, um, the key examples that my mother put forward. I mean, I think we, what we should have said, or I should have said at that moment is, well, that's a law. You know, you, you, don't, you don't have a driver's license because you think that's a good idea right. or you think that you have an obligation to society. You have a very personal obligation because if you don't have a license, you're going to, you know, you won't be able to drive or you're going to pay a fine or go to jail. And so I think there's a very big difference between responsibilities we feel and legal obligations put forward by governments and law enforcement agencies. Based on competence, by the way, that was an important distinction that you brought up in the chat. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. There, there's, there's an actual, you know, involvement with that, and you, you do make some decisions about that, and you have to put your competence on the line. Whereas, with the vaccination uh, protocols. It does seem to me like we're just taking the words of sort of experts, some of them very anonymous, uh, on some medications that have been uh, very recently developed. And I'll be, you know, full disclosure, I, I, I'm fully vaccinated. I wasn't going to sort of, you know, take that issue on. But if it comes down to the question of people resisting authority and government mandates about anything... Mm -hmm. I think that's a very fair point to be at least respectful about, even if we don't agree. And I think one of the highlights of, of the whole um, happy hour Xmas party for me was how respectful everyone you know was about opinions. You know, right. it was really yeah. a, an example of of civic and civil behavior, which. Isn't that the really the deeper underlying question? I think this is why this has hit so hard for us, is that we are so polarized as a society that we've lost the ability for respectful conversation and debate. That's certainly what I feel about the arts and humanities community. Um, 
I think you and I have discussed that multiple times, how easy it is just to fall out of alignment with, with sometimes people who we counted as close colleagues and friends. I've spent 10 years on uh, social media having people get upset with me and yell at me for everything from my opinion on Kanye West to the 2016 elections and now finally COVID. So it's nothing new for me. I'm sort of used to be, and I'm not saying this is not what occurred during the meeting, but I'm used to people actually shouting at me and calling me names. <laughs> and uh, it just, it like anything else, you build up a callus to it and it stops affecting you. It, I remember it stinging at first and having several conversations with my wife about like, why, why do people get so irate at me? And she said, I don't know. She said, I've never seen people get madder at another human being for something seemingly so innocuous than people get at you. And so I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I sort of, you know, I internalize that. There's this great bit by the comedian Anthony Jeselnik, who's notorious for being the too soon comedian, meaning he will have a quip or a joke after a national tragedy with very little time in between for the wound to even start to scab over. And he was on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, and they were talking about his persona as this villain of stand-up comedy. And he talked about how when he first started out, he attempted to be a clean comedian like a Jim Gaffigan or Jeff Dunham or someone like that. And he said he would get on stage and people just hated his guts. It was something about the way he presented himself, the way that he looked, that made people think that he was some kind of high school bully from an 80s film. And so he told Brett, he's like, once I realized that, he said, okay, if you think that I'm the villain, I'll just lean into that and become, you know, this guy, <laughs> this guy who agitates people for a living. While I don't take it as far as Jezelnik does, I'm saying all that to say I'm used to it. So the conversation that we had was a really nice uh, break from that, right? Because if the worst thing that happens is uh, a couple folks dis disagree with me vehemently, I'm good. I'll survive, you know? And I think everybody had that. It was, an, it was an atmosphere of, you know, we are all, uh, you know, not close because we were meeting some of these people for the first time, but we had a nice, respectful, even ground that we were standing on. And, uh, and we addressed our issues, I think, uh, we, as, about as far as you can in a two-hour meetup of, of strangers. Right, and I think that it showed that, that of course, this, uh, this topic is very, very live to air in everyone's minds and, and within their own families sure. and lives. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it does reveal that part of the power uh, is that it, there's a lot of other issues that it has kind of been become the nexus for, you know? Right. It's, it's, it's not the, the subject itself. It, it brings a lot of other things together. And I noticed um, uh, one of my things is I, I always believe typos are important. They're kind of like the, you know, a Freudian slip sort of idea. But I think they're always you trying to tell yourself something or something trying to be revealed. And I, I wrote down the phrase mass communication, which is, you know, one of our areas of interest in one of the, the topics I've taught. And uh, I, I mistyped and got mask 
communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that is so, I mean, and for anyone, you know, who's, I mean, for all of us, but certainly people teaching or dealing in retail, we are trying to understand people at a time when we've got, you know, the greatest multilingual, multicultural mix of people we've ever had, certainly in America, uh, it, it's quite a muddle. So I think the mask communication was an, was an interesting thought. Uh, but here's the thing that, uh, what I, I, I really enjoyed the fact that we kind of, um, I think, laid to rest some of the issues that we can actually talk about before we start really spinning around in circles. But it did get me thinking about some of the aspects of, of this whole phenomenon, the last two years, uh, and the broader frame of, of mass communications that have really struck me. And it ties back to one of our starting point themes of schismatics, schisms and disjunctions and huge contradictions within popular culture and media and what that effect has on us. We've talked about Gregory Bateson, whose great theory of the double bind, about really, really, not just confused messaging at the parent-family level, but completely contradictory messaging, how that may be uh, one of the causes of schizophrenia and some of the mental illness that we, we see in the world. So I was thinking about the contradiction between cherry cheesecake dessert recipes for Christmas versus the sitting president talking about a winter of death. And I thought to myself, you know, I mean, here I am, you know, a pretty senior adult, really, and that just freaks my head out. I feel my mind just like a rubber band. And I wonder, well, what would I think about if I, if I were like 14? You know, how could I process that information? And to me, that is the biggest issue that we face at this particular moment. And I think we see that across many other topics. COVID and the pandemic or whatever new variation emerges, whether it's, you know, Upsilon, Iota, uh, mu, Zeta, you know, who knows what, what's coming up, what's in store for us. Should we survive the winter of death? Or should we survive the cherry cheesecake, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I wonder how much more of that kind of intense contradiction and conflict we can endure psychologically. That's what's coming yeah. out in, of my thinking about this whole thing. This, to me, is right. where the real pandemic is. What do you think of, of that concern? I think it's probably the most valid concern that we have right now because I'm, I'm thinking of how much friction is caused by the, the messaging that we receive versus our daily lives, especially if you live in a place... Uh, that's more rural, for example, where I live, I go on Twitter and I see all sorts of news about Omicron. Like you said, the winter of death. Uh, I got a telegram message from a friend of mine in London yesterday, uh, Jay, who, you know, informed me that a lot of his friends are, contra <clears throat> excuse me, 
contracting COVID, contracting Omicron, uh, because it's so highly transmissible, you know, sort of versus my lived experience where I, I took my, my son to the Oklahoma City Zoo yesterday to see the the lights, the Christmas lights. They do they do up the zoo in this really awesome light show. And afterwards we went to a crowded Vietnamese restaurant to eat pho. And nobody there seemed concerned. I know that vaccination rates are very low in Oklahoma um, and people have all of their different reasons for not following uh, safety protocols that they might follow on the on the coasts but that's just a real world example of people's and this might be a great topic for the new year sort of overall but the cognitive dissonance that's experienced by people who uh, purport to believe in one thing but then uh, have very different experiences in reality and that's something that I've been thinking about uh, a lot in terms of how I interface with the current um, society that we that we live in, if we live in a society at all, versus my versus my day to day. So I'm sort of I'm I'm taking what you mean uh, regarding COVID and expanding it, as I think you're implying, to an overall just you know an inability to to square the circle basically to fit the 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 round peg in the square hole um because i think that that is what the cause of a lot of people's frustration and anger is when they talk about these things i think when you get down to it you you lack coherence so some some people particularly i guess twitter and facebook users make up for that in in volume or uh, volume of, of of audio or volume of posting right they're cumulative as in linear rather than dimensional uh-huh. you know they're not right. really able to deal with with a dimensionality of, of coherence it's simply a cumulative uh process and i think here's the the, the way to sort of connect a few dots and also to, i think to um to help listeners understand where we, we hope to go in the next year with some very positive, um, you know, examples of, I mean, I think it's, it's important to, to reach some clarity of critique of a problem, to identify the problem, but we do hope to move on towards some uh, at least attempts at solutions or suggestions of solutions. I was going back through... Um, uh, you know, our total portfolio now, which this is our 68th episode, which I think is quite an achievement. Um, from the very beginning, you know, we have one of our key focal thematic points of emphasis has been on uh, the relationship of magic, religion, and science. We said right from the start, and this is not our idea, this is a very, very common, deeply ingrained Western civilization idea that there's an implied evolution here where a culture begins with magical ideas and an oral tradition moves forward perhaps Mm -hmm. to religion a more formalized systematic highly socialized and controlled form then you know oftentimes that coincides with the the rise of, of written languages and maybe certain cultures 
achieve a kind of science, which we often really, um, unfortunately, in very uh, colloquial terms, associate with the European Western traditions, uh, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, and no one who's really uh, knowledgeable about the history of science entertains that idea. But nevertheless, that's a conventional uh, mistaken idea. But the idea of, of magic evolves to religion, evolves to science, it is a very common idea. And you can Google on that across a whole range of literature throughout the world. We've consistently argued, however, that that conceptual, you know, cultural uh, progression is certainly simplistic, if not plain wrong. Right. You know, all three of these modes of belief and engagement with the world, uh, individually and, and collectively, they entwine, they mingle, mutate. We've got evidence throughout world history not just European history, world history to this effect, nothing could be more apparent right now. That's, I, I would argue that uh, you know, the categorical distinctions between these are, are crude, clumsy, and, and often, very often freighted with rhetorical intent. Uh, that got me thinking of, I mean, I think a lot of people know of the famous Arthur C. Clarke adage about a sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's cool. That's a, it's an interesting science fiction idea. I think that adage places a very unfortunate overemphasis on technology. Mm -hmm. And I think much of the magic in a fantasy literature sense, you know, Harry Potter, Tolkien, etc., that hasn't helped us at all. Uh, you and I, I think, have tried to examine magic uh, from a few different points of view. An animist, anthropological, indigenous uh, people's point of view, an occult, spiritualist perspective, mm -hmm. uh, an alchemical, uh, proto-science perspective, mm -hmm. and a Jungian sort of tarot, uh, psychological perspective, which draws on all the others. Uh, and I hope that some, you know, people have heard that sometimes we've actually tried to, you know, put forward some new integrated and intersectional ideas of our own, um, which demonstrate that magic has an evolutionary capability. It's yeah. not a static, fixed Correct. thing from the past, you that's, know? That's very important because the distinction that I would make with the... Um, the kind of magical thinking that we're talking about, whether that comes to uh, sort of filling in the gaps for a lack of understanding, that's where trusting the experts comes in, or the Arthur C. Clarke quote about any sufficiently advanced technology would seem like magic, <clears throat> is that you and I are positing magic as a uh, singular generative force uh, within communities and within the individual rather than a kind of discursive glue that holds together disparate ideas that don't quite connect. Well said. Well said. I like that. I like that. I think yeah. that's a very strong uh, clarification there. I think that's really important for people to hear. Um, so with that, that tool, I think David just made a nice tool, um, 
with that tool in mind, uh, my thought moving forward into 2022 is this argument. I'm going to say that we are living in a much more magical society and moment in history than we ever have before. There is more action at a distance, more virtuality, more intangible and invisible factors affecting us. Not just microbes and viruses and things that are hard to see without instrumentation. I'm talking about things that are inherently invisible and only deduced by apparent consequence, which, of course, could be completely delusional. So I, 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 I dig what you're cooking up here. I'm liking this connection that you're that you're making between between yeah between the idea of the invisible in terms of the microbial and the the viral and you know you could even connect things like like Wi-Fi right electricity all these we're sort of surrounded by invisible forces right now in a way that's as far as we know in the the written history besides maybe something out of herodotus or something that we've never uh we've never experienced before i'm not sure if that's exactly where you were going but that was the first thing that came to mind there's a lot of invisibility going on here to the point where it becomes like you know a a sort of growing opacity of (laughs) of the invisible which seems like a contradiction but Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I'm writing that down. We're going to have to uh, visit that early in the new year. That, that's a lovely idea. Yeah. Uh, because that's kind of schismatic, contradictory, paradoxical thinking that works. And this is going to be one of the, the techniques and approaches and certainly vectors that we're going to try to pursue is where counterintuitive and paradoxical thinking can be used as a magical tool. You know, mm-hmm. so we're not victimized by it, but we're actually we're, we're rejigging uh, what is cognitive dissonance and turning it into a magical, you know, Ouroboros stake, you know, turning on itself yeah. and, and managing to spin a wheel, yeah, the, create power. The, the renaissance of the invisible, basically. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's well. Here's an extension, just to riff on that forward, because you and you you really triggered a good thought. Because this is this sort of completes this little arc of of uh, initial argument, is that as the level of invisible forces around us, from the microbial to uh, the sea of electromagnetism that we all swim in, all of those are dependent upon a priest cast of scientists and experts to mediate and help us navigate in a shamanistic, even a degraded shamanistic way. And, and that's cool. We always will need that. There, it is important that people understand things like electromagnetism and, and a fair number of other things. But in addition to those forces which are still physical, which still fall under the rules of, of physics. And even if you know the average person doesn't understand them, there are schools of thought, there are experts, there are abilities to teach and convey those principles. 
What can't be gotten around is there are still more examples of things that are purely, purely, inherently invisible because they are conceptual matters of the mind and they fall into the realms of, of language, philosophy, anthropology, and psychology. And though there, our, our question of who the experts, the priest cast, are, that becomes very, very dubious. And one of the issues that we all face is taking a bit more responsibility for our own minds mm -hmm. and really wrestling with, well, what do I think about these things? What do I, what do I think about a whole level of conceptual uh, vagaries and, and abstractions that are that are surrounding me all the time and that may influence me very greatly mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and only we can do that as individuals but in order to do that we need some community strength some tribal strength to help us right and it's important I think to add on to that point that finding out what you really think via a community with a sort of strong constitution and so and support network doesn't necessarily imply that you are going to end up in a new or unique place uh, either from where you started or from you know the sum total of the akashic record right you're not necessarily the, the attempt to, to synthesize understand and and integrate the invisible into your life is not some kind of neoliberal quest for uh, uniqueness and individuality, right? It's it's just a simple attempt to to really generate coherence within your own mind. So the content of the thoughts or ideas uh, can, in fact, and often do, seem perhaps a little simplistic or basic. You kind of can horseshoe around to a, a simplicity that you that might actually be refreshing once you get there. But yeah, the idea is not to come up with some kind of new thing with this focus on progress and newness or what have you, but just, just simply coherence would be adequate for, the, for, for these troubled times in all caps. Exactly, and to go back to another book that we've talked about, Metaphors We Live By, by uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. You know, isn't it interesting that we have the phrase consciousness raising, yep. not consciousness deepening? Mm -hmm. You know, isn't there, I mean, raising, that's a cumulative sort of capitalist, uh, pile the money on, pile this on, more is better, you know, there's a lot in that. So with the notion of coherence, if we all reclaimed that idea as a goal, or at least as a vector, mm -hmm. um, that we could then start asking, well, to what extent could I achieve more coherence or experience more coherence rather than be the past consumer of what we already often know is incoherent? You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's the weird thing is we, we, so many of us have already some pretty cynical and disillusioned attitudes about the media, about commercial entertainments, about 
all of the these magical ways of experiencing the world that are different than our own uh, lived experience, different than our own immediate networks of flesh and blood people that we, whose voices we can recognize, and whose smells we can recognize. I, I want to. Um, the voice recognition thing is is very interesting. We're going to be talking a lot about that in uh, in the new year, and and it it has something to do with uh, this session's practical tip. But really, ask yourself. <laughs> How many people, how many voices could you really recognize? Not how many faces you could recognize, how many voices? I think there's something a lot in that. But the point is that coherence is a magical state of balance and further possibility. So it's not static. Mm -hmm. It's inherently not going to, to linger on. It's a constant... Uh, dance rather than battle, if you like. Uh, but it's something that we can achieve within our own lives and help others within our own networks to gr more greatly experience and build on. Mm -hmm. But we can never expect to get that from the anonymous... Uh, electromagnetic microbial sea of invisible strange magic. We've got to do some rejigging. We've got to do yeah. some rewiring, some recoding, and, and casting some different spells. Everybody at this point has a well-stocked pantry of ideologies, and we are going to attempt to create a fricassee of coherence, right? Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. 2022 oh. is looking good. I think we, we have one more episode before 2022, but I'm excited. It seems arbitrary to distinguish years uh, based on the Julian calendar, but we do it anyway. I've done it since I was a kid, New Year's resolutions, etc. And 2022 feels exciting going into this new year in terms of writing projects, these podcasts, the ideas that you and I pass between each other and amongst the groups in our chats. Uh, that's where I wanted to, to end. I think you brought uh, a lot of coherence to our mission and to uh, the meetup that we had. I, I, I really like what we're extrapolating from this. I'm looking forward to doing the next one. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just excited for, for the future. I am too, you know, I, it occurs to me that, that, that uh, yes, the, the, the calendar sort of situation is a bit arbitrary, but it, it's so deeply in, embedded in the idea of social consensus and tradition. And it has within it, you know, I, one thing I do like about January is the, is the notion of Janus, mm -hmm. you know, the, the two-faced mythic figure, the looking back and looking forward. And I like the idea, for me, uh, this this year is is a very pronounced sense of goodbye, and also looking forward. I'm I'm moving house, and moving to a, a different area. I'm looking forward with a lot of excitement, and I do feel like I'm saying goodbye uh, to some things. And I think we're we're culturally saying goodbye to to quite a bit. Um, I wanted to uh, to raise one sort of. Uh, closing question before we, we get to hear your response to the imaginative challenge. And it's sort of writing based. I, uh, I had a look at, you know, there are all these end of the year best reads thing. 
And I had a look at NPR's, uh, you know, 300 books we loved, you know. And I'm not saying anything about... um, I don't mean to to be critical about books I haven't read. I don't mean to... to, uh, be envious or jealous or, or I, I don't know what I feel about them but when I googled on that article on the NPR website the first reaction I had was that there is an eerie similarity in all of the book covers that are represented and that's actually not true mm-hmm. if you really look at them there, there is more diversity there and diversity is of course one of our keywords but that wasn't my takeout. I, I really felt like it was. It wasn't quite like the Hardy Boys covers, all being, you know, kind of the same model or a giant series produced by one publisher. And I'm not saying in any way there isn't a diversity of authors, types of work, or anything. But so my initial reaction was as a as a kind of book cover designer myself. I, I do a bit of that, and. Uh, I just had a kind of instant reaction. But then I also thought, you know, here are some books that, you know, have won the recent Pulitzer and National Book Award things. And I realized, you know, I haven't felt a driving need to go out and read those. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Because I, I think that you and I both do have a driving need for a stream of creativity. And I think this sort of... Uh, magical uh, psychological self-help search for coherence is is something that we both share and I wondered if you if you were to look at that uh, NPR uh, wall of book covers would you understand my my response to that absolutely it's the same feeling that I get anytime I venture out to a Barnes and Noble which is that there just isn't anything that is particularly scratching the itch that I have for something like coherence, namely because books that would attempt to be doing the things that I'm interested in in them doing are not uh, as immediately profitable as the books that we see right now. I think you would agree that this all comes down to the bottom line of the failing big five, maybe big four soon. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that the overall aesthetic similarity of the covers is indicative of a larger problem within publishing, which is its inability to engage with new voices and new ideas. And by new, I mean truly new. I was um, discussing this on my Twitter with some writer friends, and I was thinking about the myth of the slush pile which it has become a myth at this point, right? Nobody is being discovered in a slush pile and elevated to the levels that some of these books are elevated to. You have to go through the proper, uh, you know, social channels in order to get where you want to get to. And, you know, you and I do completely fine. Uh, I'm in a place that I'm very happy to be in, and so are you. So this isn't necessarily coming from a place of sour grapes, but rather a kind of consumer disappointment that, I would love to be able to engage with a best books of the year list and read at least half of them, right? I'm looking for discerning tastemakers to point me in directions towards things that I'm interested in. But the closest that I can ever really find is in the the, the historical nonfiction 
section, right? Because that's kind of the common ground that I can find with, I guess, what still sells. But when it comes to books that are interested in synthesis and extrapolation, uh, besides Tyson Yunkaporta's book Sand Talk, which was released uh, last year, I haven't found many books that that really do that for me. And and Tyson is interesting because he's coming from a place of uh, tribal Aboriginal thought. That's so he's he's able to kind of add an interesting and unique puzzle piece to uh, ways of thinking, ways of cohering ideas that that I'm interested in. But a lot of this is sort of, you know, it's trapped by a dialectic process, you know, that that we all seem stuck in. It's a, it, you know, it's a, it's publishing is just an extrapolation of the of the discourse that's going on on social media and in our news media right now. And that extends to things like fiction. I want so badly to find works of fiction that completely blow me away. The way that I was blown away when I was younger, all the way up until my mid-20s, I would say, but the past 10 years have just been this wasteland of box ticking that uh, it's just it's just not for me. And I think a lot of people share my my sentiment on that. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think that's, that's well said. That, that really gets to uh, my frame. And I, I think it puts some of uh, my concerns and, and to some extent negativity into somewhat of a positive sort of area because I do think that there are some areas of, of interesting nonfiction that, that continue to emerge. Um, and certainly the, the awareness of some of the, the really great interdisciplinary works of, of the last you know, 50 years is an argument for being a little bit more careful about the money and time you know, one puts into new things. Uh, but I like that idea of, and it was very simply put, but I think it's very well said, and it isn't true across all of the books. You, you didn't say that, but you, you did make a, a statement that I think is very applicable, that what I'm responding to at the immediate book cover level, which I think is, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, I, I'm, I'm starting, I wanted to start with that because I think it is so essential to, to the nature of books mm -hmm. uh, that what we're looking at or what I'm responding to is implicitly uh, a kind of resonance with the very problems that, that we've just been talking about in terms of <clears throat> the media and social media, Absolutely. you know? There are not ways around that. There are not other windows. There are mirrors of that in different forms. And that certainly explains why there, there visually are so many similarities across the covers. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, not all of them. And of course, whenever you put a bunch of things together, you know, they start to look more similar than they might be. But nevertheless, that's how books are sold. You know, we know that. Yeah. And, and if they do look similar enough mm -hmm. uh, at more than just a glance, well, maybe they are similar. I think so, you know? yeah. And all I really want is the ability to uh, have the, the freedom of discovery rather than constantly being corralled into different intellectual property pens. You know, I mean, I just, I, I just, love that. I just want to mm -hmm. be able to find something cool. Like the way that I felt when I first read 
you know, Infinite Jest or Zanesville for that matter, or, you know, um, uh, what are some other books that, you know, White Jazz knocked, yes. knocked my shit out, you know? And it's, you know, where, where are the, um, besides some books by, you know, Samantha Schweblin and Blake Butler, Jane Unruh, uh, Virginie DuPont, Michelle Welbeck, uh, and you'll notice that half those authors are not American. They're either South American or French. Um, I'm not finding it in fiction. And it's a big bummer because fiction is kind of my life, sort of how I make my living. Um, but anyway, I could go on and on about that for days, literally. And I mean literal in the Webster's d- d- definition sense. I could go on for days about that. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Well, I wanted just to raise that at the end of the year. And again, we're not saying, I'm certainly not saying anything against those well-meant and well-chosen lists. I'm sure those choices are echoed by bookstore owners and bookstore workers around America. Uh, I think there's a lot of good sense in them. You know, no criticism. It's just a very instinctive uh, response at the end of the year, which I I think is perfectly valid. I mean, it's another sort of commercial choice that we make. But that might be a nice segue into the imaginative challenge response. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. This gets a little, uh, it's a little dark, but I think could make for a fun Pulp Fiction novella story, maybe. Depends on where it goes after where it goes. So you'll recall, I've been driving in the desert. I come upon a rest stop, I relieve myself, and I find out back a sort of sexy transvestite elf who's been shot that has a backpack full of, uh, you know, fungible poker chips, right? Then a car pulls up. So my first thought is survival. I have to figure out how to do this. I'm not an outdoorsy type of guy. Uh, I Whoever shot this elf <laughs> might be nearby. So my first thought is to take the backpack, run back into the public restroom, and dangle it over the toilet, right? With the top of it open, right? So I'm, th- I'm threatening their, uh, their cash cow right there. And so into the bathroom rushes the hit squad. And it is, in fact, more sexy transvestite elves and a leader who is a perfectly <laughs> albino twink dressed in footy pajamas, right? (laughs) And they have their guns trained on me, and I have the fungible tokens uh, sort of, you know, dangling over the toilet. I tell them to lay their weapons down. They comply. A very tense standoff is initiated. And then, thankfully, a Mustang pulls up, and a beaten and bloodied man in a Santa Claus outfit comes out with a 3D printed PVC pipe rocket launcher that he fires <laughs> at, at the restroom. And the idea behind this, what we'll eventually find after the chase scene ensues, perhaps I take a hostage and they hit me to the whole plan, is that the man in the Santa Claus outfit was recently hit it big at one of Vegas's many casinos. And it being Christmas time and him being an absolute pervert, he has a degenerate fantasy 
about him and his elves delivering presents to a weak and powerless young boy who he then overtakes and has his way with sexually. But upon finding out that he hit it big, one of the elves decides to make off with his bag of chips and is only stopped at that bathroom because my hostage is a former marine sniper who <laughs> who was positioned on a hill above and right when i pulled up that was when the trigger was pulled and they began their descent towards the public restroom so that is the that's where we go from there oh my you know i'm i'm just going to propose a working title for this which I, I don't think we need to reinforce any Christmas themes here, but I love what you started with of where it goes after where it goes. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's just amazing. Oh, I, I don't know I don't know what more to say. I think that if people uh, listen you know closely to the the bare bones nature of the prompt, which which did have a few you know interesting sort of sidelines on it. Uh, you can see how David has riffed on that in, in some really outrageous and wonderful ways. Uh, and, and it could go in, in so many different ways. Uh, I think it's a prompt that I've used that really generates some very, uh, very interesting diversity. And again, I think that to tie back to one of the big themes of our time, certainly one of the most common words, diversity, we often mistake where diversity comes from. I have found in, in, in writing courses and just language and, and my critical thinking works, I use it across all of them, that more diversity comes from prompts like this than free range ideas of, of just, you know, go your own way, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very interesting where true conceptual, structural, intentional and finally psychological effect differences come from uh, limitation is going to be one of the big themes that we're talking about in the new year as a technique it's a technique of getting back some control of our magical minds you know everyone's afraid of limitations well it depends you know in what category do we really mean by that if we mean a government mandate well that's one kind of limitation but what about some other kinds of limitations that are in fact jumping off points and nurturing points for genuine diversity? So, well done. Thanks. Yeah, that was well fun. Done. I had a good time with that one. Chris, for this uh, episode, which has really been a, a heater, really been a banger, as the kids might say, do you have a practical tip and a dream to cap us off with? I, I do, and, and the practical tip I really swear by, it will sound a little bit strange, and sound is, is the key element here, and it does take some, some discipline. All these tips, you have to actually do them. You know, it's like exercise. You can see it done once, and you only get the benefits if you follow the discipline yourself. But I'll begin with this statement. In 1993... I noticed that I began to use the expression, I don't know what to think. Now, how do I know that? Well, I'll tell you how I know. Because I was doing quite a bit of driving alone at that time. 
And I became a little bit concerned about the things I was saying to myself and to what degree I could measure those, record them, manage them, analyze them. What was I really saying to myself? That's a lost topic, isn't it? It's so private and individual. And a great deal of research into this letter has found that people are not at all clear on what they say to themselves, certainly not repetitively. So my suggestion to you is this. I, at the time, had a very basic little Panasonic recorder. I thought the big key to my writing success was dictating novels. I actually found that very difficult to do. It is, yeah. I think that is a very difficult technique, and it doesn't really work for me. I'm a hands-on, physical, typist sort of person. But I did start recording with that device when I was driving alone. And I began to hear some things that were very, very interesting. It is difficult to listen back. You have to take the time. You do. But you're listening to someone kind of important. Yourself alone. Right. Yourself yeah. alone. And I would say try this exercise again for an isolated three-day period of time. And just try to get a handle on what you're actually saying to yourself. Mm -hmm. Listen to how your voice is different to yourself than to other people. Do, does your voice seem to change in tone and register? Oftentimes, it, you know, people think it does. Mine, mine does a great deal to me. Not everyone feels the same way about this. Some people feel very strongly, some people don't. But listen to some of these key phrases that may come up. Listen to key moments of emotion. If you're driving in the car, I'd suggest that some people often pick up on anger, you know, talking to stoplights, talking to other drivers. Yeah, but what we're getting is a little glimpse in terms of the real interior monologues that we're having. Okay? Yeah, it's the... So try to put in some, some focused time on that. It is very, very, very instructive, I guarantee you. It's the spirit recording the staircase, basically. Right, right. And in very physical terms. And it really, you know, it's again, we're trying with these tips to keep things very simple, practical, and as low cost as possible. Not always low effort, but low cost. So um, I just want to add on to that. I have a, it's called a Tascam recorder that I got for 80 bucks on eBay that I use for this purpose exactly. I will carry it with me everywhere. It's a great little field recorder. Picks up crunching leaves and passing cars. Makes for some really great ambient uh, noise to go along with your voice. So that might be a nice little added step too, just listening to your voice in the space around it and, and, and how that interacts too. Absolutely, cool. absolutely. Yeah, good addendum there, excellent. Okay, well, the, the dream, I think this is kind of a nice dream to sort of uh, lead into Christmas. It's not a Christmas dream at all. Um, but I was, I was walking, it was, it was another sort of rainy day uh, sort of dream. And this is a little bit odd because I, you know, it, it doesn't rain very much where I am. And, and these environments are always something, you know, they're composites of, of places in the past. They're never clear one, one spot. But I was in a large sort of park environment, and I came upon this uh, children's playground area, sand, and a few sort of suggestions of jungle gyms, but a lot of 
of grass, sand, and tan bark, and, and, and more than is usually uh, assigned to a, a, a city park. And my instant feeling was kind of revulsion because I could see that there were these really uh, feral children uh, inhabiting this park. They had dug these big tunnels. Mm -hmm. uh, it appeared that a couple of tunnels had collapsed on some kids and they didn't care. It was really kind of nasty and it, 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 uh, there was a sort of a germ, maybe sort of COVID-ish sort of uh, sense that I had of, ooh, you know, it, it wasn't fun, cool, adventurous kids, you know, making secret caves and burying pirate treasure. This was, this was just sort of squalor, you know. But I walked around, and it, at one point, the, this sort of sand cave network became kind of unavoidable. And I had to sort of go down one of the larger tunnels and I really wanted to stay away from these filthy kids. And I came into this one section, and my first reaction was even more disgust because I was confronted with this giant uh, mangy, sort of stuffed buffalo moose sort of creature, some sort of hybrid thing, kind of like something out of like uh, where the wild things are. And it was, it was a, a, a giant stuffed toy, but it had come to, to life, to life. And it was in this section of, of sand cave with these other shadowy beast things. And it was doing surgery on tiny machines, but also worn and, and broken toys and... Uh, you know, some everyday appliances that we often just throw out, like toasters or, or computer stuff. And I watched it, and as mangy and sort of initially uh, disgusting as I thought this the main creature was, I suddenly had this feeling of tremendous admiration for it and its other sort of shadowy animal hybrid helpers. It was kind of like a weird blend of, a, of Santa's workshop and some of uh, Terrence McKenna's psychedelic mm, visions. Mm -hmm. And in the other section of cave, these feral children started looking dirtier and more savage. The more admiration I got for these damaged but clearly immensely skilled uh, dream creatures repairing cast off things and I woke thinking you know that's that's a beautiful metaphorical choice that we all have you know we're all damaged mangy broken things but the question is do we kind of go more savage and cave-like and dirtier or do we start fixing things mm. you know mm. so that's I woke up on a good vibe and I think that's kind of a um a little bit of, I mean, it's not a Christmas message directly, but I think it's something that um, I hope uh, people sort of wake with the kind of hopefulness that uh, that I had there, you know? Absolutely. Well, all right, folks. That's a great ending to this Christmas episode. I am going to forego any kind of housekeeping because I think we're, everybody's on board with what we've been talking about. 
and simply wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Chris, you have any sign-off words? Just a very, very Merry Christmas. I'm sorry if there's any sort of spiking in the tape at mine. I, I, I don't know what it is. I'm just sitting here quietly. So there's some <laughs> sort of magical gremlin that occasionally takes over. I'm hoping that uh, David maybe can clean that up a little bit. But thanks, everyone, for listening. Be well. Be safe. Celebrate the season the best you can with people who matter. Uh, you know, it's, it's conventional wisdom, but it's still true. The people that you can celebrate with are the people who matter.